0: So for some strange reason, you know, I get briefed about these. That's the only reason besides reading a lot, I get briefed because Mr. Harrison believes I'm somewhat questionable. Uh, And he asked me (laughs) to subtly ask you about Brad Pitt. And I don't know how to subtly ask you about Brad Pitt. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about Brad Pitt?
1: I'd be happy to. Right. Um, it just as an aside, it, it's it's very funny. you You probably can tell that I enjoy history. I've dedicated my life to studying history by by training I'm actually a British historian. Living all over the world. Uh, I just I enjoy historical sites and reading. Unfortunately, my family does not share my love of history. In particular, my wife, Sheila, has little interest in it. But for her to meet Brad Pitt, and to be at the world premiere of a film i can tell you she's never been the same and for so many people uh, this is like the one G whiz thing the the greatest thing that i ever did um and it was it, the experience of a lifetime so as i was transitioning from the army as i was I'm, I'm getting ready to retire i got the call from Hollywood, and it was whether I would be willing to, to work with to advise Brad Pitt in upcoming film. The film was Fury. It was a 2014 release. It was filmed in England, actually, at a former RAF base. And it was converted to look like a, a mock British village. Uh, but I was very privileged to, to meet Brad Pitt. I find him uh, incredibly uh, intelligent thoughtful man who takes his roles very seriously and did a lot of research. And that's how I was brought in because they were looking for someone. I served as a technical advisor, as the senior military technical advisor to the film. And it was directed by David Ayer. And uh, he did a, a great job as a great director. But my role was to assist in understanding how a tank crew would function, radio communications, crew drills, maps, uniforms, just to look at the historical aspects. Um, And and that was that. And I would say that uh, Brad Pitt was extremely humble, uh, very gracious, very intelligent very thoughtful. And uh, I would agree with my wife that he's in person, incredibly handsome and fit. He's uh, very much an athlete and even more impressive uh, when you see him in the flesh, Um, but just can't say enough good things about him.
0: Well, what I will tell you is if nobody was listening to this podcast, they now have woken up because they heard the words Brad Pitt, historical (laughs) advisor to Brad Pitt. And so they'll say, okay, we better listen to this Kevin guy. He might have something in him. (laughs) Hello, I'm Rashad Tabakowala, author, business advisor, and supposed futurist. And welcome to the What Next podcast, smart conversations in a time of rapid change. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to yet another episode of What Next? Very excited with our guest today, who is Colonel Kevin W. Farrell, who is retired from the United States Army. He also happens to have a PhD, and today he is the Chief Executive Officer of Battlefield Leadership, LLC kevin welcome
1: it's my pleasure to be here today rishad and and greetings to everyone i'm uh, really thrilled to be part of this and it's it's quite an honor for me
0: well kevin can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself what you are doing now and how in the world did you get here
1: the course of my career i guess you could say there have been three main segments Uh, first and foremost I was a career U.S. Army officer. I spent 30 years in uniform. Undergraduate, I attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I think I moved some 22 times in the course of my Army career, and I took part in three different conflicts. Uh, First of all, in the Balkans, and then as an advisor to the Afghan National Army in Afghanistan, and then finally and most significantly as a battalion commander where I led a 1,000-soldier organization, a combined arms battalion, we would call it, in East Baghdad, Iraq, for over a year. Uh, Following that, I attained a position. I was a permanent professor or an associate professor, a tenured member of the faculty at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, wherever saw the military history curriculum there. Then since transitioning or retiring from my active service, I went into the, the corporate world, and now I serve as what would perhaps be called a consultant, but I think it's a bit more than that. I lead an organization, Battlefield Leadership, where we work with corporate executives and many leaders throughout the business community. And we use the lessons of history really to help them solve contemporary leadership and business challenges.
0: You and your firm are master storytellers, the best I can tell. Uh, and you are combining both history and place and stories of inspiration. So tell me about the importance of storytelling and leadership. The, the power of story. Telling an effective story
1: is the way we learn the best. If you think of nursery rhymes that we learn as children or fairy tales, uh, they stay with us our entire lives. Similarly, with historical examples, with those that inspire and also those that inspire dread, the reason they'll connect with us is through the power of story. I'd often joke to American audiences that one of my chief roles when I taught history was to undo the damage of the eighth grade football coach that was teaching history on the side, because all too often we can reduce history to facts, dates, names, rote memorization that makes it about as exciting as reading the phone book. When we can connect to historical figures as flesh and blood human beings that saw the the world in color, just as we do, that experience the heights and the depths of the human condition. It makes them accessible. It makes them real. Then we can go in and understand in a visceral way, what they were experiencing, how they worked through it, how they led, how they made key decisions. And then it's much more comprehensible to us, and that's where story—the power of story—comes in.
0: Is there, you know, when we when there's this debate about whether leaders are born or made, um, are there ways that you quickly can determine if someone has either a lot of potential or very little potential to be a leader? Do you have like a filtering system? I- I do. And I think one of the first things that would
1: filter out in a negative way would be shortcomings in the realm of character and courage. The competencies are things that can be fixed or or adjusted most often. But if someone cannot be trusted, if someone... Is, is devious. If someone lacks integrity, uh, this is a signal that they will not be a good fit. And I think that would be true in a civilian context, although sometimes it takes a little bit longer to figure that out. Uh, similarly, if an individual lacks courage, they might not want to climb an obstacle, for example. They might not want to rappel down a rope. I mean, these are very simplistic things, but they will indicate that the individual is is very focused on, on being self-serving and unwilling to do something larger for the group. Harder to find in a civilian context, but I would argue that these are things that you would look for as well, and it'd be great to filter them out early, save a lot of pain down the road.
0: Some people believe that inspiration is a God-given gift. On the other hand, you know, inspiration is very critical to leadership. So how do you encourage or train or sort of help people become inspirational if that is possible?
1: Yes, I think inspiration is a key thing. When we think of those that we want to bring in, on board into our organization, we want them to be enthusiastic about what it is whatever it is we're building, selling, whatever service we're providing. And inspiration comes in, in many ways and forms. And I think for all of us, as we look at what do we want to do with our lives, what inspires us? Where have we found individuals, examples, or causes that motivate us to want to do more. And I think a big part of it then is making sure that the people on the team want to be in the role that they are. And when we think of bringing new people into the team, are they going to be a good fit for lack of a better way of putting it? You know, do this, is this something that engages them? If we're doing something just to go through the motions or simply to provide income, uh, yeah, th- those are important things, but we'll never achieve what the, the best that we can. And I think by connecting with your teammates, those that you lead, if you can find out What is it that brings them joy? What is it brings them satisfaction in life? Encourage them to pursue that. And then finally, and this is perhaps tangential, but I think a key aspect of inspiration is being a lifelong learner. It's interesting, if you examine any successful leader in any period in history, I think, you'll find that they're not one-dimensional individuals, that they normally have a broad range of interests, and there's a cross-fertilization that takes place. I think of the the Wright brothers, for example, starting as, as printers, then moved to bicycle repair, building their own bicycles, and then, they were inspired by experiments taking place with hang gliding and and solving the mystery of flight. Well, in a strange way, all of those diverse interests came together to allow them to tackle a challenge that humanity had struggled with for for millennia. And uh, I just think that inspiration is such a key component of leadership.
0: So our business, which is the marketing services, business services, communication and advertising services, You know, success for us is probably 50% of the time. Uh, You know, if we win half our pitches, if half the time we go in and try to sell something to the client and we come back successful, that's considered to be really successful. It's better than, you know, baseball, where the really best players can, you know, nobody even gets to 40%. Uh, But it means at least half the time we come back with, you know, our butts being kicked and losing. Uh, And that often happens in battles again and again in the army. So what about resilience? How do people bounce back? What do you trade on that? Well, what you said, Rashad,
1: made me think of a famous quotation from Churchill, success is the ability to go from one failure to another with no loss of enthusiasm. And this really, you know, this really is an attribute of successful leaders and successful organizations. I mean, we learn from the failures. They've I've heard fail, you know, first attempt in learning. Um, how we how we deal with the failures is going to determine how we succeed in the end. Nothing. All these cliches are cliches for a reason. That nothing in life that's worthwhile comes easily, but. If we continue to make the same mistakes, that's a problem. And as you look at the, the ones that don't succeed, you want to conduct uh, an after action review. You know, let's look at what we did. In everything I'm convinced that, that goes well, you can still improve. and things that go poorly, there are things that are still're we're, we're good enough, that are worth sustaining. And so if we have a mechanism, by which we continually evaluate. And I don't mean in the sense, like whose heads are going to roll as a result of this failure or on the the opposite extreme, okay, we had a very big success. um, Let's go on to the next mission. Taking time to look back and from a leadership standpoint, okay, what did we do well? What could we improve? And what do we take from this going forward? If this is part of the operating culture, then those losses or the ones that we don't win can be much much better absorbed so that, okay, we'll get them the next time. But we know, we know we're not going to win every time and accepting that as our mindset um, is, is important, but we also want to accept the attitude, we're going to continually improve.
0: How do you make sure that all the elements of leadership and everything that you have learned does not fall by the window when you're under threat. Yeah, that's a great
1: question and I think of it also in a business context. How do we deal with the unexpected or to put it more broadly, how do we deal with catastrophe? Right, When a a client asks us a question we didn't anticipate or a new set of requirements comes up at the last minute, it's like, oh my goodness, we haven't prepared for this at all. And I would draw here very heavily on my military background and experiences, Uh, I think in particular uh, the, the worst day of my life in which I was in the middle of an operation that went horribly wrong. Uh, make a long story short, a suicide bomber, a, a, a homicide, a, a vehicle borne laden with uh, explosives attacked the outer perimeter and in the process killed uh, one of my soldiers and, and wounded many others, but also uh, killed many innocent civilians, the dozens of them, that the majority of whom were children, Um, very somber, uh, very horrible day that's still etched in my memory. But as much as you can't be prepared for that specific type of environment, you can prepare for the unexpected. And if you think of one of the things that goes into military training, and I think it's advisable in a corporate context as well in a business sphere, is that as leaders, always remember that our behaviors, our actions, the way we communicate, the way we move, is going to cascade through an organization and be magnified. As uh, the old American expression, running around like a chicken with its head cut off. If a leader becomes unglued, really re- just loses self-control, becomes hyperactive changes in voice and mannerisms in a way that shows loss of control, you can count on the fact that the subordinates, the other members of the team, will take on similar characteristics. And I think our listeners, if they reflect back where they've seen leaders respond well and respond not so well to either a catastrophe or even just the unexpected, uh, you, can, you can picture it in your own mind. So to Rashad's very good question, my advice is think about it. Prepare as a leader. How will I deal with the unexpected? How will I deal with the catastrophe? And when it comes, take a pause. Take, take a moment just to gather yourself and think, okay, it's not as bad as it seems. Before I act, and this can take just a few seconds, but distance yourself from the chaos of the moment and think, how can I bring clarity to the situation how are we going to adjust i think that's uh, th- those are just a couple thoughts
0: off the top of my head you talk a lot about teams and the importance of teams and teamwork and we as a company are increasingly working across different brands different countries different types of uh, both backgrounds and expertise. How do you integrate different backgrounds, different expertise, and sometimes, you know, each team believes they are superior and now they have to all work together. How do you do that? I think it begins
1: first and foremost at at the small unit level, if I can use that phrase. That if, if we imbue with leaders throughout that, look, your first role is to care for your people and then accomplish the mission. And sometimes they're, they're one and the same. We can discuss or debate you know, how, how you sort that out. But at the same time, get the teams to understand that they fit into a much larger framework. In the military context, we had a, a phrase commander's intent or strategic intent. And the idea is, look, we, we all have our specific functions and we're intact teams, but we need never to forget that we work alongside, we are subordinate parts of a of a larger organization, and ideally we also have others beneath us. And so by focusing on the vision of the larger enterprise, it's a way really to to solve this inherent friction for the need for initiative from below and alignment from above, that you don't become siloed, uh, that you're working in cooperation, not necessarily in competition. Healthy competition is fine, but uh, you can carry it to such a way that you see whether it's HR or another geographical uh, unit or whatever it might be as, as the enemy, as the ones that are the obstacle to progress. And if you can flip it and get leaders to understand, no, they're doing what's, what's right from their perspective, just as we need to from ours and just understand that. A shorthand phrase I'd share with you is API, assume positive intent. All too often, there can be a tendency, if we're left out of an email chain or we don't know this other part of the organization that well, that we can ascribe negative intentions to it. Oh, they're doing this because they don't like us. They're doing this because they don't understand us. And if we can flip it and say, no, they're actually trying to do right what makes sense to them. And so if we can understand their perspective and help them understand ours, it really can overcome a lot of those, those barriers, those silos.
0: And a big part of this would also be making sure you communicate. And when you have an issue, you speak up and talk to people, right? Communication is critical.
1: Communication, I find with my corporate clients, is probably the single biggest challenge. And the larger, the more complex the organization, that communication can end up being the problem. And this is where over-communication, over-communication, repeating the essentials, is, is such an important thing. A tool that I found that's very effective, uh, especially in a global organization or one in which there are regional variances, uh, maybe where you have a a large percentage with English as a second language, or maybe we're not even communicating in, in English, and whatever the case might be, I took from my military background, and I've shared it with my corporate clients, this concept of the back brief. That when you're communicating with a neighboring organization, or maybe it's a superior, or maybe you're giving guidance to your direct reports, that at the end of that guidance, the person receiving the guidance says back in her or his own words, "Oh, this is what I understand you want me to do. And it shouldn't be patronizing. It's not a formal thing. But even in my organization, we do this routinely. It ensures that the message sent is the message received. And if we have consistent, clear communications at all levels, this is how we can cascade intent, not only vertically, but laterally throughout a large, complex
0: organization. Being a leader, you want to listen, but being a follower, a potential leader, you want to speak up. So how do you do that?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's more similar than dissimilar, and people without experience with the military could be surprised by that. And in and, and saying that it's more similar than dissimilar, having had the privilege of working with a broad array of, of corporate clients, uh, very, very large, truly global, and, and some not so large, uh, one of the parallels between the corporate world and the military world is that even though there can be officially stated values and rules and procedures that we follow, it's often the individual leaders that uh, make the difference for better or for worse. So in a military context, it is very hierarchical, as you rightly point out, but the best leaders ensure that the upward flow of communication is, is open and listen to, and so that you can speak truth to power, that you can say when things are, are, are going well. In fact, the best units will encourage, not the naysayers, but we call it red teaming, where you challenge the assumptions. You say, well, you might designate somebody in the organization when you're doing the planning process. But the best leaders are always attuned, listening for maybe the dissenting voice, ensuring that they're getting diverse opinions. Obviously, not every leader operates that way. And in a hierarchical structure, it would be very easy to shut out dissenting points of view. And that that has led to many military disasters. We don't have time today. And you can think even in in recent world affairs, we've had cases where, wow, assumptions going in were made because dissenting voices were not listened to. And that can lead down a very bad path. Uh, I think it's the same in the corporate sphere. You have senior executives, the best, that are open and eager to hear differing viewpoints, and they want the flow of communication upward to be truthful, even if it's not pleasant. But as everyone on this call has encountered, it's not uncommon for some organizations to have a leadership climate where, listen, I only want to hear the good news, and I want to hear you parrot back everything that I say, and I I don't want any dissenting thing. And the way to lead upward in both those environments, if it's a negative one, then you have to find workarounds. You have to find a way maybe to get the information to the individual in a less threatening manner, or maybe there are collaborators that you can get to. But it is a challenge uh, when you have leaders that are not open to dissenting or differing points of view or hearing the hard truth sometimes.
0: Yes, I've sensed that the best leader is- are open to that, and as one of my bosses basically said, I have enough mirrors, I don't need you to be another one. We have to remember that one of the reasons we are hired by our clients is to provide a different point of view, not necessarily to be disagreeable, but to a great extent, we bring in additional thoughts, we bring in additional perspectives. And sometimes you know, it's very difficult under pressure and you don't want to piss off your client, to actually speak up. But in many ways, if you don't, then you become very much a mirror and they've already got many. Kevin Farrell has shared with us a lot of elements and essentials of leadership, um, starting with a very key, uh, what I would call, uh, definition of leadership, which is getting people to accomplish and wanting, inspiring them to do what needs to be done. He has basically provided us with some things we can put into action immediately, like, for instance, having a back brief, which is getting people who you brief to tell you back what they have taken away, on assuming positive intent Or API. And so if you feel that you are being treated badly or you've been left out, it may not be an act of commission. It may be just an error of omission. And surprisingly, the importance of storytelling how eventually emotion and storytelling, integrity and trust are big parts of leadership. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you very much, Rashad. It's been a
1: pleasure and a privilege to be on with you today. What Next, a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.